Welcome back to Two Dedicated Attorneys, a podcast for the arm industry. I'm your host, Liana Lattis, and I'm here with Kelly Nepper-Stevens and Nicole Strickler. Ladies, it's been a while and so much has happened since we last got together. To, you know, do a little icebreaker, what is your favorite memory from 2018? Well, gosh, um, my favorite memory, of course, is just every time Kelly and I hang out. I mean, how am I supposed to pick one, Liana? <laughs> what about the time we all oh, hung that's out? Great. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Oh, live. We all hung out together at Collector Live last year, and Collector Live is about to happen again uh, next week on January 15th. Yep, in Dallas, that Texas. I'm, I'm loving the plug. Yeah, that was an accident, too. <laughs> I would definitely put that down as one of my favorite memories of of 2018 for sure. I I also, one of my favorite things that came to mind uh, recently and relates to a topic we're going to get to in a moment um, is when uh, a a representative from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau or the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection at the RMA conference last year in February – asked a question of a panel presenting on the GDPR data privacy law out of the European Union about how on earth the European Union would be asserting jurisdiction over a company in the United States that's the BCFP's turf um, in trying to enforce the GDPR law. It was a a really funny um, discussion and a a highlight for sure from that conference last year. Another conference that's coming up um, in a couple of weeks here. You know, my uh, my highlight from that conference, I mean, besides, you know, mingling with all my colleagues, definitely would have been the spa. So not as interesting as as your favorite memory, but um, not to be overlooked nonetheless. I think I like your uh, memory a little better too, Nicole. <laughs> Uh, Well, very cool. Um, It's great to catch up with both of you. So without further ado, let's get started on today's topic. Things to look out for in 2019. What What cases should we keep an eye on? All of that kind of stuff. So first topic is a validation notice. That's definitely something we should be looking out for in 2019. Will SCOTUS have to resolve that? Kelly, what do you think? So just two days ago... I think maybe three, a court in Pennsylvania issued its ruling in Durnell versus Stoneley Recovery Associates, a case that both Nicole and I are closely familiar with. And the court ruled that uh, Stoneley's notice, which the court noted, closely tracked the language in the statute, confused the least sophisticated consumer, uh, according to the court. Uh, the use of the word if. Uh, was one of the problems, and it and it the court grabbed that language from the Cadillo case, which is out of New Jersey, and all of this revolves around ultimately the Third Circuit's opinion in Graziano, which I think is so distinguishable because the Graziano opinion, which is kind of from a while back, I think it was in two thousand and five, maybe. Um, stated that a law firm that changed the validation notice, that actually inserted the word written in 1692 G3, uh, that that was okay that the law firm added the word written because Congress probably meant for that provision to be in writing. Um, And that's distinguishable from several other circuits, such as the Ninth Circuit, which followed the general principles of statutory construction. If Congress left out a word, they meant to leave out a word. But I think 
go ahead, Nicole. I, I can I can tell you want to say something. <laughs> well, you know, I've always had a problem with Graziano and Graziano's ruling. I've and just you caught me with the whole statutory construction thing because I've seen that more and more often nowadays, where I feel like courts are missing that unless there's something ambiguous about the statute itself. There's no reason to be guessing and delving into legislative history and 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 whatnot. You know, if the plain language of the statute is clear, it means what it says and says what it means. And I think, um, I do think Graziano, in its reasoning, uh, is incorrect. Um, and I I I know that's why all the other circuits to look at the issue have ruled otherwise in terms of um, the in-writing requirement. And and that bad opinion, so to speak, is unfortunately now spurring all these other bad decisions. Um, although I, I would say I think they're, they're bad for additional reasons, not only because of the in-writing requirement, I think, you know, the way that both Cadillo and Durnell are analyzing the the words in the statute and inferring what the unsophisticated consumer would then assume by them is is very wrong. Um, I'm sure yeah, that's not a surprise also, to anyone listening. Yeah, and it, <laughs> that it I think it's an affirmative duty on a consumer to do something that you know. I don't think anyone thinks they should have to do. I feel like if a consumer calls me up and tells me that they're disputing, that I should just honor that dispute right then and there, which I do. We shouldn't require them to actually do something affirmatively different and put something down in writing. Um, And I don't think any debt collector that's a legitimate debt collection company with the best standards and practice in place does. And so, you know, we talked about this in our last episode, and I don't want to, you know, belabor this point, but I do think we need to ask again, does an agency need to create an additional sentence to be placed on letters going out to consumers in the Third Circuit that says something like, in your jurisdiction, the courts have held that you must dispute in writing? Nicole, would you recommend that for folks like me who are sending out you know, collection letters across the country? (laughs) I can't, I can't recommend that. And one, I don't know that just telling the consumer courts in your jurisdiction have held X would even satisfy, you know, what Congress has said needs to be in the notice if the Third Circuit is correct in their reading even. Um, And then you have the other problem of, you know, basically giving legal advice to the consumer. I think, I think basically what, what the third circuit has, or what these district courts are saying is the FDCPA 1692G language is unclear and, and then taking the wrongful step of then faulting the debt collector for verbatim putting that language in the notice. And I, I just, I think it's wrong on all sorts of of, of different avenues. But the re- other reason why I have trouble advising clients to um, change the language in a way that I just don't think is correct and it is because, you know, I'm from the Seventh Circuit and we had an issue here 
where the Seventh Circuit essentially changed a long-standing rule of FDCPA interpretation. And when they did so, you know, all the debt collectors that had been following this prior Seventh Circuit opinion were faulted then um, for not basically knowing that that opinion was incorrect. And, and this was based on the venue statute. Basically, you know, it, and I don't want to get too far off topic, but in Newsom versus Friedman in the Seventh Circuit, the court interpreted judicial district one way and then later reversed itself and said, no, just kidding, we think it's something different, but we're also going to blame all those debt collectors for not doing it the right way. So my fear would be, let's say the Third Circuit reverses itself, which it can do, or we get all the way up to the Supreme Court, by us changing the language to agree with the Third Circuit, are we then going to be in a position where we then are in trouble again because we've we've tried to do something that wasn't the right thing to do, even though the Third Circuit told us to. It's it's almost like a very uh, crazy conundrum, but that's why I have, you know, issue with advising clients to put something in the letter that I just, I think the Third Circuit is just plain wrong on. Um, I just don't know that there's a answer. I, I, I think that's one of my big hopes and dreams for 2019 is that, these cases will quickly go before the Third Circuit and we can get a decision out that brings certainty to this so that our businesses um, don't have to uh, keep dealing with this issue. And and perhaps maybe um, with the debt collection rulemaking that we're anticipating in the first quarter of 2019, we'll get some clarity or um, some relief from the CFPB if they provide a um, sample letter with a sample notice that they believe is preferred. Um, so that that would be a super great way uh, to kick off um, the year with some some certainty for business out there. Yeah, I know we're looking forward to a lot of things from the CF- CFPB this year, um, but what kinds of things uh, do you think the Supreme Court has in store for us this year, Nicole? Well, I think the, the case to watch right now is going to be the uh, Abduski case, Abduski versus uh, McCarthy and uh, I think Holthus is the pronunciation. And and basically this case um, is going to analyze the definition of debt collector in the context of non-judicial foreclosure proceedings. Um, those of us that aren't you know uh, familiar with non-judicial foreclosure process, it it um, the title is very telling. It's essentially a, a process by which a trustee um, at the state level can, um, you know, seize property and sell it to satisfy a mortgage debt uh, without involving the courts. Um, and so there's been arguments on both sides as to whether or not this process is indeed debt collection um, and whether these entities or persons that are engaged in this uh, type of business fall under the definition of debt collector. Um, And the courts have come to different conclusions on this. The oral argument before the Supreme Court uh, actually just occurred earlier this week, which was very interesting. Um, Those of you that are interested, I would really recommend you uh, taking a listen to it, um, which you can get off the Supreme Court's website. Um, But you could kind of I, I thought the interesting part was I, I didn't 
I thought that the people um, that some of the justices that are typically more conservative, I would have expected to not have as many questions as they had. It seems like the court was pretty split on their feelings, and so um, I always think that's it, that's interesting. Um, but you know, it, the, some of the more conservative, you know, justices like Roberts and Kavanaugh. Um, seem to really have some issues with the fact that this type of um, business would not constitute debt collection, which I thought was interesting. I would not have anticipated that. Um, so it, it's definitely a case to watch because even if you don't engage in non-judicial foreclosure, um, it's probably going to give some helpful interpretation and, and definitions um, relative to debt collection. And um, at least as to, I think, debt purchasers might be particularly interested because it might give us some new arguments about whether or not, you know, passive debt purchasers fall underneath the act. Um, you never know. That's, that's, that's why I'm watching it. I'd like to see how where that goes. Um, but it was certainly an interesting argument, and, and we would expect that opinion to come out this year. Um, I don't see why it wouldn't, given the oral argument just took place. So, um, that's that's definitely one to watch. That's very exciting too. We're also waiting to see if the Marks versus Crunch case gets picked up by SCOTUS, the TCPA case that the Ninth Circuit just ruled on, um, that has created a split between the Ninth Circuit and several other circuits um, around the U.S. So, so there'll be some um, interesting decisions, perhaps if they take Crunch uh, coming out of the Supreme Court, that we can we can watch for. With the TCPA, we are also awaiting a clear definition of the ATDS, correct? Yes, <laughs> that, that would be something that we'd be listening for from, from the Supreme Court because the way the Ninth Circuit has defined it in their Marx case um, is much broader than many of the other circuits and is reminiscent of the 2015 FCC order. And then we have a lot of FCC um, activity uh, coming out as a result of that. Um, which also might go about trying to um, clear up some of the the concerns and and bring about again some certainty that business can use to rely on when when making plans and when you know uh, making phone calls in this particular instance using any form of telephony system that uh, you know um, can can be uh, you know computerized in in some way. Right. Is it a Telephony or telephone? I like that telephony. I, I know. I know. I don't. I don't. I just. I put a Y on that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Telephony equipment, um, whatever the word is, you know what I'm talking about. A word I did not know about until I got into the collections industry and started talking about a dialer versus an ATDS versus a predictive dialer versus human intervention. <clears throat> so it would be great to have some clarity there. Yes, and we also should see, uh, in theory, the CFPB debt collection rules sometime this year, maybe. Um, I've heard some whisperings as to spring, but I don't know how um, realistic that, that is. But that's also just something to, to look out for. I think they're pretty sure about that like March 2019 deadline that they've given themselves. Um, I, I think they're gonna. I think it's gonna come out in March, and I think that all of you should go immediately to accountsrecovery.net and enter the contest where you can win like a five hundred dollar Amazon gift card or something if you guess the date it actually comes out. So, another plug. I love it. 
I, no, but these are not intentional. I'm just saying this <laughs> is for anyone to win. <laughs> Another hot topic is data security. What do you guys think we can expect from data security this year? Yeah, I think that we're going to hear a lot about data security. After the Cambridge Analytica Facebook situation, we had California react rather quickly um, and pass a data security law. And uh, this week, there's been a lot of talk about it because the attorney general's office in California has um, held their first hearing on that law, um, which was a public hearing seeking public comment about um about the law, and I would encourage everyone, ACA uh, is is working uh, with its members to make sure that comments are provided. So if you have comments about that data security law and how it is going to impact your business, you should absolutely um, report that information to the ACA because they're going to be uh, you know, I'm compiling all of that together and, and providing it to the attorney general's office. The reason why it matters is um, because it's basically a copy of the GDPR that I was talking about earlier. It's one of my favorite moments from the RMA conference last February. Um, and, and the reason why this is important is because it gives consumers the opportunity to request that you provide them a list of all the information that you have about them and then delete it. Um, and this is a real problem uh, for collection agencies. We actually had someone call up uh, to record recently and say, hey, I'm I'm a consumer in Ohio. I would like you under the GDPR to um, delete all the information you might have about me. And fortunately, the GDPR did not apply to the consumer that contacted us because that individual was not a citizen of the European Union. But under the GDPR, it applies to companies in the United States um, and consumers who are European Union consumers. So if someone's a European Union consumer here living in the United States, the GDPR, GDPR might apply to you. And certainly you should check into whether or not the California law applies to you. Um, it, its definitions of who applies is very um, unclear. So right now, if you make uh, the, the law states 25,000 uh, 25, in, I'm sorry, 25 million in revenues, um, and it's unclear as to whether that's just across the United States or just in the state of California, or if you have 50 million consumer records, which could include consumer touches to your website, to your cons customer consumer facing website. So it's also unclear. So if one consumer goes to your website 137 times, does that count towards the, you know, 50,000 or, or is it just, you know, one, you only count each consumer. So there's, there's a lot of ambiguity that's still out there in the law that hopefully the attorney general can, uh, can get around. But if you're thinking that the law might not apply to you, you should look again. So Kelly, you said how, how many consumers? Does it apply to? Like how many people did you have to affect essentially? Yeah, basically if you have 50,000, five zero comma zero 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 consumer records. Um, and so that's the kind of amorphous term, like what, what, do, what do they mean um, by that? And so because, uh, and it, it's unclear if that's like just California consumers or um, more than, than um, California consumers, but um, ultimately, uh, you know, that arguably would apply to any debt collection company that's using a, a website and having consumers um, contact them through um, their website. Um, so, you know, uh, what what comes to my mind right away when you say that about deleting information and, you know, 50,000, et cetera, is law firms. 
So, I mean, under the rules of professional conduct, law firms are required to, you know, retain information depending upon the rules of the state bar for a certain number of years. And I can see no state bar thinking that we should be deleting anything under any circumstances. So is this something that would affect them too, in theory, or is it not? Yeah, if they're interacting with consumers um, through uh, their website, and and the the law is actually even more amorphous than that. It just says if you have um, something, and I don't have the law sitting in front of me, but it's it's something like, you know, if you have 50,000 Um, consumer records, right? And so that could be anything from a consumer going to your website one time and interacting with it, or it could be an account being placed with your office. And certainly a collection agency is going to have over the course of a year, 50,000, you know, accounts in your office. And, you know, that, that question that you have asked, I think comes to mind for me in a lot of different areas, because number one, you know, many of our clients have requirements that we keep records for a certain period of time. Many other states have requirements that we keep records for a certain period of time. It's beneficial for us to keep records so that we can show a consumer who later on down the road gets sued in a matter that was a collection matter in my shop, you know, how many payments they made while the account was in my office. So um, I really think that what's critical is that we recognize how sweeping this law is, how we're going to get swept up in it as debt collectors, as debt buyers, as uh, collection agency law firms. And uh, we need to get uh, to California and let them know that they should start carving out some kind of exception, you know, for folks who, um, you know, are uh, working in the consumer financial uh, field um, based on account that's in their office, you know, maybe we can agree, um, you know, not to pass that data on to anyone else, um, you know, except for the owner, obviously. Um, Or, and certainly we want to keep that to help defend ourselves too. That's another thing. Um, and, and then there's some question about how it relates to other laws because, you know, it does say in there that, that um, you know, there's sort of an exemption. Um, it, it doesn't apply to inf- information that's covered by HIPAA or the GLBA or selling of information under the FCRA, um, you know, but, but I'm not sure that federal, like if, if the GLBA applies to you, which it does, right, as debt collectors, the GLBA probably applies to us or our clients, um, you know, so, so that we are, we are providing consumers notices of how we're using the information that we're entrusted to and, and who we might be handing it out to, um, you know, will federal preemptions, you know, say that, oh, we can just comply with the GLBA, um, and not the California data privacy law? Probably not because the California data privacy law has other things that are a little bit different from the GLBA. And so, you know, the courts would probably say that the GLBA doesn't occupy the field um, and that, that, you know, the state is allowed to pass a data privacy law. And and I know Congress is going to be, with the new members in the House, they're going to be very concerned and thinking about whether or not they need to pass a a federal data privacy act. So this is something really important, and I, I think I would recommend to everyone, you need to be thinking about as part of your data security plan what type of information you have, where you get it from, and how long you're keeping all of that, and why are you keeping all of that? Um, that's that sort of mapping is something that you should start doing now, because the California law is going to come into effect next year, um, probably with some fixes, but it's coming into effect next year, so we need to get ready for it. 
I saw that it comes with a fine of like $7,500 for each violation, but I didn't, and I didn't, I haven't analyzed it as, as much as you have, Kelly, I can tell, but is there any type of private right of action for violations or is it just a fine scenario? And I mean, I'm not making light of the 7,500 fine per violation that's, that could add up quite quickly. Yeah. So, um, I, off the top of my head, there is a private right of action, um, uh, particularly for data security breaches, as I'm recollecting. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's it's definitely something that you need to be aware of, and, and especially because it's a consumer-oriented statute with consumer privacy in mind, you know? And so um, they want consumers to be able to bring an action if they have asked you to provide them with the information that you have about them and you say no, or they've asked you to delete it and you say, I refuse. Um, or they ask you, don't sell it and you, you know, sell it. So. Yeah. Talking about data security and uh, the United States possibly adopting a federal law for that soon, the thing that comes to my mind, which has been a big story in the past couple of days, is um, some major cell phone carriers have been selling location data, um, I guess, to companies like Cambridge Analytica. I'm not really sure, but I'm sure there's going to be a big crackdown on data security here shortly. Yep. And I think oh, the same thing's going to happen with medical information and stuff, right? Think about what Google knows about your own medical information based on what you are searching, right? You go to the doctor, you get a diagnosis, you go home, you're searching that information. Google knows about it. Are they selling that information? Does HIPAA apply to that? Should it apply to that? I think we're going to see some sweeping uh, data privacy reforms that are going to impact major pieces of, of legislation such as, you know, HIPAA and um, the GLBA perhaps. And so got to stay abreast of that. It is scary out there. It's the, the things that people know. They know when you yeah. open your emails and if you open your emails. And I was driving uh, this morning to take my son to the pediatrician and I passed a Walgreens and my phone alerted me that there were coupons at Walgreens, mm. which makes me think I need to turn off some type of sharing service or something like that. But I, I was irritated almost when that happened. I was like, why? I don't want Walgreens to know I'm driving by Walgreens, you know? So I... I get it. It's um, there's a lot out there. I, I guess I see the, I see the value in, in in privacy law, but at the same time, I agree. When you hastily put one, you know, out there like California seems to have done, it it can cause a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's interesting that you say that because I think that there are a lot of folks out there, and I'm not going to lump the millennials as a group here, but um, you know, uh, millennials in particular. Um, I know I heard Joanne uh, Barefoot at an AFSA um, conference talk a lot about uh, millennial preferences. And as a group, generally speaking, they don't mind that. In fact, they in, they like that, um, you know, companies are reaching out to them based on where they're located or what they've been searching on the web. It's just a convenience for them because that's something they've been growing up with and known um, all their life and don't see as a privacy violation. Um, one of the things that I've been geeking out on is data, uh, not data, Apple's um, new privacy statement. Um, if you guys haven't taken a look at it, you can go to apple.com and check it out. But I love their privacy statement. And Nicole, I don't know if you don't have an Apple phone, but um, they talk a lot about what they share from your location services. And, and you can 
learn in a very plain English sort of fashion how you can turn that kind of stuff on. And that's the kind of data, um, you know, uh, um, sort of a privacy statement that I want my company to have. So I've, I've been looking at apples really carefully and, and thinking, oh, do I have a very similar sort of statement about what I'm doing with the information that you're providing to me, consumer, when you're interacting with, you know, my company via our website or email or, you know, by the phone. So it sounds like privacy, privacy is 2019. So along with those Supreme Court cases, there's a lot to look at. Yeah, we had a lot of great topics. Validation notice, Supreme Court, TCPA, and data security. What um, is the most awaited thing you guys are excited for this year? CFPB debt collection rulemaking. I'm, you know, Hands I'm kind of pumped for, uh, for the RMA conference coming up in February. I'm looking forward to that. There's some uh, great attendees going. I'm looking forward to seeing some clients and some colleagues. And so that would be good and learning some stuff. So that's a, that's my immediate plan besides my trial on Monday. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck in your trial. Yes. Good Thank luck, you. Nicole. And that wraps up episode three, what to expect for 2019. Be sure to tune in to the next Two Dedicated Attorneys episode, a podcast for the arm industry. Thank you so much, Kelly and Nicole.